So there are two kinds of knowledge that we can have about God, intellectual and actual. The early church knew their God, not just in an academic book sense, but in a personal, tangible sense. And that's why we've been studying foundations of the New Testament church. How can we capture and emulate the first Christians so we can know God, not just intellectually, but personally, how we can know God and become a habitation, a place of God's distinct glory in our city, just like the church in Acts was in Jerusalem. Is this possible? It absolutely is. And this is why God has written this book for us. So we can be encouraged and challenged to walk in the fullness of God, not just individually, but corporately. You know, we, all of us can experience personal revival, but it's next level when we can experience it corporately. And that's what we're striving for and going after. Which brings us to our foundation this morning, another foundation that we're teaching on mercy, as in being a community of mercy. To build the picture of what we can be, I want to start with the proto-New Testament church as given in the nation of Israel when it was led by Moses. And I want us to see how we've inherited a powerful legacy of mercy. Here's a drone shot of the 12 tribes of Israel and what they looked like as they traveled in the desert after being emancipated from Egypt. This might be a familiar picture to you if you study the Bible notes in the back of your Bible. The Israelites were commanded by God to have a distinct formation whenever they camped en route to the promised land. And as you can see, there are four groups of three tribes each. Three of them on the south side, three on the north, three on the east, and three on the west side. And the tabernacle of God was right in the center. Now, if you study Numbers chapter 2, this is a fun study to do. God distinctly told the nation, you're not to gather in the corners but only in the up and down, left and right sides of the tabernacle. Or as geographers call it, only in the ordinal directions of south, west, east axes. Not the ordinal directions of southwest, southeast, northwest, or the northeast corners. So when Israel was camped in formation, an incredible picture emerged unbeknownst to the Israelites. From an aerial view, they were a picture of the cross. To me, this is amazing how God was already signaling his redemption back then that Jesus would die for you and me. Amen? God will always, his will is always to be in the midst of his people. Not to be on the outside, not on the fringe or the peripheral, but in the middle. We can define revival as God being in the middle. Not on the side, not on the outside, but in the middle. Exodus 25, 8 says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That's God's heart, to dwell among us. Habitation. What father doesn't want to be in the midst of his family? Why do we have Christmas? Why do we have reunions? So dads gets to enjoy family and be in the midst of that warm fellowship. But to catch even more the stunning beauty of what's going on here, we need to zoom into this picture. The whole structure was called the tabernacle, but what was the most holy part in the tabernacle? So I've circled the tabernacle structure as it was sitting in the midst of the Israelites, and we're zooming in over to see more closely what that structure looked like. You see the high priest there, 
He was the only one that could go into the structure. And once a year, he would pass through the curtains into the holy place. And in the holy of holies resided the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to expand even more that picture of the Ark. The Ark was the most sacred item in the tabernacle. And what was it about the Ark that made it so sacred and so treasured? Well, we're going to see here that this was a special gold-laden chest, and it had as its cover something that the Bible calls the mercy seat. It's where the high priest would take in some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat seven times as atonement for the nation. And then something very powerful happened when the priest did that. Exodus 25 tells us, That God said, I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, the two angels that are pictured there, upon which the ark of the testimony, upon which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. And then we read this verse when Moses went into the tabernacle. When Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, so God spoke to him. In other words, in this simple, tender, holy moment was bundled all the prophetic and heartfelt intention of God. We can draw near to God. The voice of God can be heard. Relationship with him can be had. His glory can be seen and felt. God's covenantal faithfulness was recalled. I just think Moses going in there and all of a sudden the glory appearing, the cloud appearing, the voice speaking. And Moses is thinking, yes, God, you cut covenant with us. Of all the nations in the world, you chose us and you are tabernacling with us in our midst. And he was thinking about the signs and wonders that God did to bring the people out of Egypt. And he was so comforted and so warmed in his heart by that covenantal commitment. It's where our souls become healed and reconciled through the blood. And that separation between God and us is removed. And this special access to him was meant to be mobile. As in anywhere the Israelites traveled, God would be right there in the tabernacle. All this because of the mercy seat. At the heart of God's government and presence is mercy. This is what the Israelites camped around. And we too now, as the New Covenant Church, are called to be a community of mercy and camp around God's mercy. You know, when Moses cried out to see God's glory, that was a big prayer. And God's sort of like, do I want to do this? Do I want to answer his prayer or not? And in fact, he said, okay, I'm going to answer your prayer, Moses, and I'm going to show you my glory. And Exodus 34 tells us that the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving and kindness and truth. Now know how God revealed his glory. He showed Moses his very character, his very nature. There wasn't a blinding light, but he revealed, he opened up his chest as it were. And as Moses looked into it, he saw compassion and mercy 
as it says in the King James. The choicest part of God's glory is his mercy. It's at the core of his personality. And that's why he is called the God of love. Notice some important things regarding the ark. Notice the position of the mercy seat over the contents of what was in the ark. Three things, the tablets or the law, the manna, and Aaron's budding rod. This is a picture how mercy triumphs over the judgment of the law. It's a picture of how mercy makes the manna sweet in our mouth. Literally, when God caused the manna to appear in the wilderness, the Bible describes it as a wafer with a honey taste. Mercy is sweet to your taste. And mercy is what makes us run to and not away from God's authority. Probably the biggest curse that came out of Adam falling in the garden is that we run away from authority. We want our own autonomy. Don't tell me what to do. I am who I am. I can self-define. I can do all these different things. That rebellion is so rooted in us. And so we resist authority. But when you taste his mercy, you want to run to God. You want to run to Jesus like we see in the Gospels. We're not afraid of it anymore because we understand its goodness. Yes, God, I want you to rule over my life. I want to be your bondservant. And it's this mercy that the prophet Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3.22, his mercies are new every morning. Every single morning, it's refreshed. The reason why mercy is so sweet and crushing at the same time is because it lifts the load of justice off of our shoulders. All the wrong and sins and guilt and shame, it says you are forgiven. You are restored. You are healed. You can live in hope and joy when you put your trust in God. In fact, commentators say that the two angels overlooking the seat of mercy is represented by Psalm 89.14. Now, being good Bible students and good listeners, this should have great significance to you because Alex preached on this very verse last Sunday. And we did not coordinate. Isn't it amazing how God can orchestrate messages? So commentators say these two angels represent Psalm 89.14. Zedeku and Mishpat. If you don't know what those words mean, go back to our website and listen to the message. It's powerful. Mercy is sweet, not because justice is abandoned or thrown out. We see it right here. It's embedded right into the mercy seat. People have the wrong idea that to be merciful is to abandon right or wrong. Law and judgment. Oh, we don't discipline. We don't do this. We don't do that. That's how we be merciful. But it's the exact opposite. God's mercy is powerful and has such effect on us because of its well-developed sense of justice, not the absence of it. You think about the two thieves that were nailed to the cross with Jesus. And one of them was hurling abuse at Jesus, saying, Listen, we're up here. You're supposedly the Savior of the world. Get us down from here. And the other thief, realizing how disrespectful that demand was, said, Are, are you kidding We're under the same sentence of condemnation, justice. But Jesus saw his heart. And Jesus said to the penitent thief who asked, 
when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Mercy triumphing over judgment. There is no mercy without judgment. Well, then Jesus shows up. The Israelites have this ark that they've been stewarding, and then Jesus shows up. The very community that gave birth to Jesus is going to see mercy in action in ways that they never imagined. When Jesus healed the paralytic in Mark chapter 2, the Bible records that the crowds were astounded. And they said, we've never seen anything like this, never before. Wouldn't it be cool if God comes into Vancouver and starts doing things and people say, we have never seen anything like this. The Vancouver Sun puts its headlines. We've never seen anything like this. Can God do it again? He can do it in our hour. And Jesus would come and show how real and tangible and human God's mercy is in real life. That's the part I love so much about God's mercy. He understands our humanity. We're not just robots trying to carry out his commands. He understands we're made from the dust. And his mercy would take a nation by storm. We look at the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels and touching the lepers and the blind man, the demoniacs, the adulterous woman, the Samaritan woman, Zacchaeus who climbs up in a tree and he says, I got to come to your house. You got to come to the house of a sinner. And Jesus had compassion on all of them. Matthew 14, it says, when he saw the large crowd, he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. In the Greek there, there's a word called spikonexomai, and it means this deep moving of affection. He had this deep moving of affection for the people. He felt compassion and mercy, and out of that, he healed their sick, sickness. Mark 1, it says that he was moved compassion for the leper, stretched out, told the man, stretch out your hand, and he was cleansed and healed. The two blind men that were near Jericho, Matthew 20, Jesus was moved with compassion, the Bible says. He touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. By the way, you know one of the ways that we know about God's mercy? He was willing to extend his hand and touch those who had leprosy. I'm a microbiologist by training. I know the bacterium that actually causes leprosy. It's highly contagious. You don't want to touch people with leprosy. And yet Jesus was willing. I love you. I care for you. I'm risking my life to touch you. That's mercy. Outside the healing arena, Matthew 15, as the crowds were constantly listening to him, the Bible says, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I don't want to send them away hungry. You mean the mercy of God is that tangible? It's that practical? So Jesus multiplies the bread. 4,000 people get to have a meal cooked by God. Amazing. Luke 15, the famous story about the prodigal son, goes off, spends his dad's wealth, ends up in total poverty, has a moment of clarity, says, I need to go back to father's house. What am I doing here? And so as he's coming back, the Bible says that the father ran out to meet him and to hug him. And here's the thing that's not written in the text. The father didn't ask him anything. He didn't say, where have you been? What did you do? What kind of trouble were you in? He just went and embraced him. With all this, we can summarize Jesus' ways and his heart in one verse. 
John 3.17. We all know John 3.16, but I'm focusing on John 3.17. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. Just let that sit on you for a moment. God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. By the way, this is uttered by Jesus. He is uttering this about himself in third person. No judgment, only rescue. Then we come to the church in Acts. And they had absorbed Jesus' mercy and compassion and ran with it. And just like Jesus, they healed the sick and ministered to the people in their city. And notably, we read in Acts chapter 6 how they set up an entire mercy ministry providing food for the Hellenistic widows. That is, those who were Greek-speaking. They weren't part of the, the natural community. They had a different language, so they were a little bit on the outside. And so they were forgotten in the distribution. So the church rose to the occasion. They said, we need to include them. And it was such a large operation, sourcing food, purchasing it, assembling it, storing it, organizing it, packing it, delivering it every single day. Remember, there's no refrigerators. We're going to say, hey, here's a week's worth of food. Every single day, they had to get the delivery out in the neighborhoods, all throughout Jerusalem. It took a team of seven deacons to supervise it. Most likely, these were seven full-time deacons. The church was like, we got the finances. We're going to hire entire staff overnight, seven people. What big hearts, because there is no government social net. Now, James, the literal brother of Jesus, who was the main pastor in the Jerusalem church, saw all of this, saw the mercy flowing, saw the lives that were touched. And he wrote in his book, Chapter 1, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. When we reach out to those who are in distress, who are in need, who are in lack, who are broken, we're representing the mercy of God. Then we have the testimony of the ongoing church in the following 300 years. And given the current COVID pandemic that we've been in, the following stories are particularly timely. Rodney Stark, who's a well-regarded sociologist and historian, makes a powerful case that one of the principal reasons why Christianity grew while Roman paganism waned in the first to the fourth century was because of the mercy that Christians displayed toward people who were physically suffering, and in particular, how Christians showed mercies during the two plagues that ravaged the Roman Empire. You know, for us, as we're going through COVID, it's unprecedented, but in the grand scheme of things, in the history of the world, we're not the first Christians to face a global pandemic. In 165 AD, a plague known as the Antonin Plague spread through the entire Roman Empire, killing a quarter to a third of the population. COVID right now is killing about 1% of the global population. That's bad enough. Back then, a third to a quarter of the entire Roman Empire was wiped out by this plague. 
And then a century later in 250 AD, there was another plague called the Cyprian plague. That, that hit Rome and it was believed at its peak, almost 5,000 people a day were dying from the disease. During these outbreaks, the church was faced with a decision, how do we love God and love our neighbor in times like these? During the Antonin plague, Christians stepped in to serve those in need at great risk to themselves. And when the Cyprian plague hit Rome, most of the population fled in an effort to distance themselves from the disease and self-preservation. While Christians stepped out in faith to care for those in distress. Instead of fear and despondency, the earliest Christians stayed and tended to the sick and the dying, knowing full well it would likely result in their own deaths. The great pastors and theologians of that time, they preached to the people, if you die, you're going to heaven. But those that are around you, if they don't know God, they will not and they will perish. So it's okay to risk your life. The Christians then showed works of unreasonable sacrificial mercy that simply dumbfounded the pagans. In Rome's the Christian, in Rome, the Christians buried not just their own, but pagans who had died without funds for a proper burial. They also supplied food for thousands of people on a daily basis. During the plague in Alexandria in the 1300s, <clears throat> when nearly everyone else fled the city to escape the disease, the Christians risked their lives for one another, for those around them, by washing the sick, offering water and food, and consoling the dying. At the risk of their own lives, they saved an immense number of lives. Basically, everyone who could was running from the plague, except for one group, the Christians. Instead of running, they ran into it to help and to rescue those in need. Doesn't that seem to be a stark contrast to how Christians are responding in this pandemic? This is an opportunity for us to serve our community, to do our part to minimize the spread and effects of coronavirus and add peace to the situation and not controversy. Mimi and I were in Minneapolis three weeks ago at some special meetings, North Georgia revival meetings. Unfortunately, a COVID spread event broke out. And one of the Canadian leaders that came with us caught COVID and as a result could not get on the plane and could not come back to Canada. So I told the pastor of the situation, it was an emergency situation, heard on Wednesday night at 11 a.m. The test had come in just a couple hours earlier, and they were supposed to get on the plane Thursday morning, and I said, I'm so sorry, but this has happened. And without blinking, the pastor said, we will find a family to take him in. At first I thought, did I hear what I just heard? I was deeply moved, and in 24 hours, they found a family to take him in. To be honest, I was pretty convicted. How many of us would take in a COVID-positive person that isn't part of our family and nurse them back to health? That's Christianity at its best. That's mercy at work. That's why our incoming deacons of 11 strong are so important. It's our desire to show God's mercy and heart for our city, to reproduce, at least in some measure, the care and compassion we see in the early church. 
Now this morning you have the communion elements with you. Hopefully you picked up one of these as you came in. Uh, if you don't, you can just raise your hand for a moment. Our hospitality team will give you one. Every first Sunday of the month, we observe the Lord's Supper. And given the message, it's fitting that we take this and make it part of the message. It's a powerful way for us to remember our call to be a community of mercy because we are partaking of God's mercy. Jesus' death on the cross for your sins and my sins. You know, we commonly read to remind ourselves about communion from 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's commentary on it. But let's not forget that that was a commentary on the Lord's Supper. It was Jesus who instituted it. In Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, the Lord said, After he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take a moment of reflection. Just, just get your heart right before the Lord. Give him gratitude for the broken body of Christ. Jesus went on to say he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured off for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is mercy given to us by Jesus himself. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him Freely give us all things. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he's given us the choicest thing that he can give us, will he not also give everything else that comes with it? The reason why God heals today, comforts today, does miracles today, is because his mercy is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That same mercy that was camped there thousands of years ago with the Israelites, that's the same mercy that's here today in our service and in every church across the city. God is bringing our mindfulness and our awareness of that back to us so that we can glory in it. Communion is starting at the top of the healing food chain. First, our souls get healed. Then our bodies get healed. When Jesus walks into any meeting, he is instantly the most merciful person in the room. He would greet every one of us personally and say, I would die for you no matter what you've done. He is the chief mercy officer. And this is how we personalize and actualize revival in our city. He's our chief mercy officer. And this is the power of John 3.17. God did not send the Son into the world to judge it, but that the world might be saved through him. Friend, I don't care how you got here. If you're a thief, a swindler, an adulterer, a liar, a cheater, a fornicator, an addict, a hater, a reviler, 
or just a plain nasty person. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to rescue you. Rescue you from sin and darkness, oppression. I don't have any power, but I know the God who does. God's mercy is asymmetrical. We are used to quid pro quo. That's a fancy word for I give you something, you give me something back. Something for something. That's a Latin phrase that we intuitively have said to ourselves, hey, if I'm going to give you something, you give me something back. Or if you give me something, I expect that I have to give you something back. So we come to God thinking, okay, if I repent enough, if I'm good enough, then I'll get some mercy in return, an equivalent portion. If I read my Bible enough or if I pray enough, God is going to bless me today. I was a chaplain for the police department in my city back in Minneapolis. And I was on a ride along and the officer knew that I was going to come along as the chaplain. And before she even greeted me, she said, well, I didn't party last night, so I think everything should go well. <laughs> That's the mindset that we have. If we're good little kids, God will give us good little blessings. But God's mercy is asymmetric. It has nothing to do with whether you're good or bad. He is mercy and he just pours it out on you. In fact, Jesus says, be kind to the ungrateful. If there's one thing that burns me in the natural is people who are ungrateful. You do all this, you give them so much attention, you pour out your time, you pour out your energy, you pray for them. They don't even thank you. But that's asymmetric mercy. God is the master of this. <coughs> that's why he can say in John 3.17, I'm not here to judge you. I'm just here to save you, to rescue you. This is the radical proposition of John 3.17. It's meant to shift our culture and to shift our disposition. When Jesus is here, mercy is here. And when mercy is here, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Oh Lord, I've received of your mercy freely. I want to give it out. There's no way I can raise the dead or cleanse the leper. But my God can. And that mercy is what we want to tie into. Yesterday I was attending a funeral service online. One of the best men in my weddings, his wife passed away from COVID. And many people were comforting him. His name is Randy. He said, Randy, you know, your wife is in a better place now. She was a wonderful follower of Jesus. She's in a better place now. But in the funeral service, he paid a great tribute. And he said, you know what? I want to change that saying to anywhere you're with Jesus, you're in the best place. Friends, right now we're in the best place because Jesus is here. The kingdom is here. His power is here. And if you need an encounter with God's mercy, then as we open up our time of ministry, I want you to come up for prayer. Healing, emotional, physical. I don't care if they're tough issues or tough problems. 
God can meet you. There's such a beautiful picture of God's mercy in this church. That his mercy sits in the middle of both righteousness and justice. That in the judgment of God, Jesus extends his righteousness for us. And that's where mercy comes. What a beautiful picture. That God moves first with mercy. That his first extension is of mercy. And so today as we were able to, to, to take this in, pray for you church that you understand you come into a place of seeing God in a new way in a fresh way because mercy brings a freshness of how we see the Lord that all of a sudden everything that we deal with everything that we hold on to every every identity that we hold on to every sin that we hold on to Mercy comes. Mercy says, no, you are new. Mercy comes and says, no, you are refreshed. Mercy comes and says, no, I see my son's righteousness on you. And that's a beautiful thing. So I want to remind the church today, every single one of you guys sitting here that is a believer of Jesus Christ, that every single one of you sit in the middle of his mercy. It is given to you. It is a gift. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We praise you. We give you all our honor. We bless you with our lives. And as you pour your mercy, may we as a church move in mercy. Let us be an extension of your mercy that you have given to us. So Lord, we thank you. We love you. We give all praise and honor to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.